0: Hello, I'm James Davis. And I'm Paul Wilmshest. Today, we'll be looking at ADR. With the disruption to some trial listings during the pandemic and increasing waiting times for trials, there are even stronger incentives than normal for parties to find alternatives to the long process to trial.
1: The courts have been encouraging parties to resolve disputes by ADR since the Wolf reforms. Mediation is the form of ADR which most people think of but other forms of ADR are available. On this podcast, we'll be looking at expert determination, arbitration, early neutral evaluation, both in and out of court, and the chancery FDR. And even with mediation, there have been some recent developments in the area of compulsory ADR clauses.
0: That's right, James, and it's a sign of how embedded mediation has become in the legal fabric that precedents for partnership agreements, shareholder agreements and other documents now include provisions requiring that in the event of a disagreement, the parties agree to mediate in good faith.
1: Paul, what's the attitude of the court been to these clauses? Because obviously mediation is always portrayed as a voluntary process.
0: Well, James, for the court to enforce an ADR clause, a number of things have to be present. Firstly, the process must be sufficiently certain. Secondly, the administrative processes for selecting a party to resolve the dispute, and of course to pay that person, should be defined. And thirdly, the process or model of the ADR itself should be sufficiently certain. This was applied with a mediation clause in Open Operations UK Limited against Invesco fund managers in 2019. In that case, the court had to consider whether to stay proceedings until the dispute resolution procedure had been followed, which included, as it happens, a mediation. Justice O'Farrell held that there was a mandatory requirement on the parties to engage with and exhaust the various dispute resolution procedures before court proceedings could be issued. The words used in the clause were clear that the right to commence proceedings was subject to the failure of the dispute resolution procedure, including the mediation process. Although the parties had engaged, in that case with negotiations, the next step in the procedure was for them to mediate. And the Centre for Effective Dispute Resolution procedure in the agreement did not require any further agreement by the parties to enable a mediation to proceed. So a stay was ordered for the mediation.
1: So effectively such a clause can require the parties to mediate, but it obviously doesn't force them to settle at that mediation. And in that sense, the outcome of the mediation remains voluntary.
0: At the other end of the ADR spectrum sits expert determination, where the parties are bound to accept the outcome of the process. There is a contractual agreement between the parties that a specified dispute will be resolved by a third party. That contract might be entered into before the dispute even arises or afterwards when everyone knows what it is they're actually arguing about
1: clauses like this are often seen in documents such as share sale agreements partnership and shareholder agreements where values are going to need to be determined such as the value of an outgoing partner's share or post-completion adjustments to the to the sale price for a business the clauses will need to define the expert define the issues that they will be determining, and provide that the clause shall be conclusive and binding on the parties, save in the case of fraud or manifest error. Such clauses can, in theory, extend to resolving matters of law or interpretation of the agreement, but Lord Newberger in Barclays Bank, Nine on Capital, LLP, made it clear that they would need to be expressly reserved to the expert, otherwise It's going to be a matter for the court because, of course, it becomes a question of contractual interpretation. And indeed, sometimes the first argument is whether the expert has, if you like, contractual jurisdiction to deal with the dispute
0: at all. It's open to the parties in a dispute to agree that they will place that dispute in the hands of an expert for determination. James, I mean, this is something that comes up very frequently in boundary disputes, because it might be the case that you could get a land surveyor or a building surveyor to determine the boundary. The downside of that is that whatever that surveyor decides, the parties are stuck with it. Whether or not, for example, the surveyor considered all the legal arguments that might be made, proprietary estoppel, adverse possession, and other things which really require a lawyer as opposed to a surveyor who's looking at measurements. And so it may well be that an expert does not in fact have the expertise to cover the entire question. And the parties will have to satisfy themselves that they're willing to live with that before they embark on that process. There are various grounds that can be raised when people want to challenge an expert determination that they've signed up to and they're not happy with. Courts are pretty hostile to that, but there is, of course, the manifest error, material departure from instructions principles. They're very narrowly construed. In one of the leading cases, James against Sherwood Computer Services, it was held that if the expert answered the wrong question, the example there was valuing shares in the wrong company, then the decision isn't binding. But if they value the right shares in the wrong way, then the decision will stand. James uh, was decided in 1989, and the courts have maintained, James, a consistent approach on this. And 20 years later, in the IIG Capital case against uh, Van der Moos, The Court of Appeal reasoned that a manifest error is one which is obvious or easily demonstrated without extensive investigation.
1: So there's clearly a role for expert determination, particularly, say, in pre-dispute agreements dealing with technical matters such as valuations. And it's a potentially swift means to resolve a dispute. However, obviously, clients need to understand very clearly that if they don't like the outcome, their options to challenge are going to be very limited. And it probably won't be suitable for, say, disputes with a large amount of factual dispute or disputes which have particularly strong legal elements. But the technical dispute, narrow questions, evaluation, things like that, obviously it works quite effectively.
0: That's right, James. How could a land surveyor assess witness evidence relevant to, for example, adverse possession? They're simply not in a position to assess whether one side or the other is telling the truth about those things they are only in a position to assess those things which are within the sphere of their expertise. The danger is that if one appoints a expert in, in a particular thing, certainly in land disputes, then they're going to focus on those areas of, that, they, that they feel comfortable in. But they will inevitably, when looking at it, be influenced by what people are telling them. And that's what would ordinarily be resolved by a judge. So moving on, it's useful to talk a bit about arbitration because that's another type of dispute resolution process which can be built into documentation or, or adopted by parties once a dispute has arisen. And of course the parties there appoint an independent third party to act as an arbitrator. Or sometimes in more complex international cases, you would have three arbitrators who sit as a tribunal.
1: Now, once the arbitrator's been appointed and that process has been commenced, you find that the timetable and the way that the arbitrator approaches matters actually has quite a lot of similarity to court proceedings. You'll generally have statements of case. There'll be directions orders. It can be the, the taking of evidence and there can be the conducting of hearings. The arbitrator can point to experts if they need to, order that property or evidence is preserved pending the award, and they can, they can even make awards uh, of orders for security for costs. There's also a power to refer at a preliminary point of law to the court under Section 45 of the Arbitration Act. Now, if there's an arbitration clause already written into an agreement, then if one of the parties tries to bring freestanding proceedings rather than arbitration proceedings, the civil courts will usually stay those proceedings and direct the parties proceed by way of arbitration.
0: That's all true, of course, but there are significant differences between arbitration and proceedings in court. Firstly, arbitration proceedings are not public, and so that can be a benefit. It can confer a high degree of confidentiality, and the procedure can be more flexible and be adapted to the particular circumstances of the case at hand. Parties may be able to agree on their choice of arbitrator, choosing someone who is a real specialist in the relevant field as opposed to a judge who may have very little experience in that particular area. One of the significant differences from court that we should mention is that, of course, that the arbitrators have to pay the arbitrator as the case progresses, which can be a serious and significant additional cost.
1: Now, a party does have the option of appealing the outcome of an arbitration. But again, the grounds for appeal are narrower than in normal civil litigation. So one would need to demonstrate that there was a serious procedural irregularity or an error on a point of law. And in fact, the criteria for granting permission to appeal is more restrictive than it would be under the CPR. You'll notice I haven't mentioned anything about challenging findings of fact. There's no power to appeal to the court on findings of fact, uh, and it has to be shown at the permission stage when applying to appeal in court uh, on the basis of the tribunal's finding of fact the decision was obviously wrong or raises a question of general public importance.
0: There has been, of course, some recent judicial consideration of how an arbitral award fits with the Matrimonial Causes Act in the Court of Appeals decision in Haley and Haley, where judgment was given last October.
1: Now, in that case, the parties had submitted their financial remedy proceedings to an arbitration under the rules of the Family Law Arbitration Financial Scheme. Now, the husband was unhappy with the award and he applied to the High Court for an order that the award should not be made final order of the court under Section 25 of the Matrimonial Causes Act. The judge in the High Court refused that application on the basis that the test to be satisfied on refusing to make an order under Section 25 was akin to that of challenging an arbitration award in court. In other words, it was very, very limited.
0: But Section 25 of the Matrimonial Causes Act imposes a statutory duty on the court to have regard to all the circumstances when making financial provision orders upon divorce. It's a very wide discretion that the court has there to intervene on the division of assets. The fact that the parties may have reached an agreement cannot oust the jurisdiction of the court, which still conducts independent assessment. The issue for the Court of Appeal in that case, as I understood it, was how these principles fitted in with the arbitration.
1: The Court of Appeal concluded that the narrower approach to challenging arbitral awards in normal and inverted commas proceedings could not be justified in the context of family proceedings because of that statutory duty to consider the award under Section 25. It was for the party objecting to the award to put before the court reasons why they believed the the order was unjust and through the notice to show cause process under the, the family court rules for putting their objections before the court. It was then up to the court to conduct a triage or a review on the papers to take the view as to whether the the objection to the award would pass a test similar to that uh, for permission to appeal, i.e. did it have a real prospect of success, rather than the narrower grounds under the Arbitration Act. In the case before the Court of Appeal, it was held that the husband did have a real prospect of succeeding on an appeal, and the matter was remitted back to a circuit judge with an ancillary relief ticket for final determination.
0: So this decision has the potential to dilute the finality of arbitration in family proceedings, but does it have implications for other fields such as inheritance, provision for Family Independence Act nineteen seventy-five cases or Talasa claims? Well, strictly it shouldn't, as the focus of the Court of Appeal is very much on the specific jurisdiction and the duty of the court when making a final order under the Matrimonial Causes Act.
1: Moving on to early neutral evaluation or ENE. ENE is a simple concept which involves an independent party with relevant expertise expressing a non binding opinion about a dispute, it might be the entire dispute, or it might be a discrete element of it. Like mediation, earning neutral valuation is intended to be without prejudice. But unlike mediation, where the mediator acts primarily as a facilitator between the parties and quite often won't express firm views on the underlying merits, the neutral will express an opinion based on the, the information provided by the parties.
0: The parties can arrange early neutral evaluation privately outside any proceedings. But there is now also specific provision, as you know, James, in civil procedure rules, rule three point one two m for the court to order an early neutral evaluation. If the court does that then directions will be given for a hearing not more than half a day and the judge conducting the hearing won't take any further role in the case if it continues. Some people may say that might be a way that people would rather cynically ensure that some judges don't hear the final trial. More broadly, in 2019, an issue came up in the case of Lomax and Lomax, and this was a uh, 1975 Act case, whether a party could be ordered to participate in an early neutral evaluation or whether it was only available if both sides were willing. The Court of Appeal held there was nothing in the civil procedure rules to suggest that the court's power to order an early neutral evaluation was limited to cases where the parties consented.
1: Now, whilst early neutral evaluation might be of limited value in, say, a factual dispute, where the case involves an issue of law or an issue such as construction of a document, then ENE can be very useful. I have been appointed as a neutral to give ENEs in cases with disputes over the meaning of clauses in share purchase agreements and to determine whether funds being held by a solicitor were being held on trust for one party or the other It allows somebody to express an authoritative view on the key issues in the case. And mediators will quite often say that the most difficult cases to mediate are those ones where there is a binary issue. Somebody is going to be right and somebody is going to be wrong, where both sides have very different and very fixed views of how that issue might develop at trial
0: so james some bodies such as the chartered institute of arbitrators cedar barristers chambers offer neutrals in much the same way as mediators and arbitrators an early neutral evaluation is a simpler and much quicker process than proceeding to trial But, of course, the parties won't be obliged to accept the outcome, and there is a risk that the early neutral evaluation might make a compromise solution more difficult, as the party who's come out as the winner in the early neutral evaluation may start taking a much more rigid line on settlement. But, of course, the party who's come out the winner in the early neutral evaluation may also get a false sense of confidence about the strength of their case, If a judge has formed a view after a half-day hearing, when the reality is at a trial, there would be a great many more factors to consider, a different judge, and potentially the complete opposite outcome.
1: I think that's again one of the things that clients need to be quite clear on with the ENEs is that is the view this judge has taken on this particular day. And I think the idea is, and certainly the ENEs that I've done, is you do give a reasoned decision. It's not just uh, saying you, you win, you lose, but there's no guarantee. That you get the same decision at a trial and in fact if you've done any under the court rules the only guarantee you've got is that the person who's expressed that decision definitely won't be the person dealing with the matter if it goes to trial
0: now the final
1: court-based adr process we're going to look at is the chancery fdr now, this is a concept which was adapted from family law, and in particular, it developed in the Chancery District Registries, where the district judges dealing with case management and frequently also on other days of the week be dealing with family law and civil relief, FDRs, or financial dispute resolution hearings. This is intended to be a more dynamic approach than the ENE, with the judge exercising both an evaluative, expressing opinions, and facilitative, helping parties try and work towards a settlement role.
0: It's also intended to be able to deal with a broader range of issues than early neutral evaluation, because it would normally involve the parties being sent out to have discussions during the course of the day, and coming back to the judge for assistance at various points. And James, I suppose that that might be relevant where parties in civil litigation are, for example, family. No, they're related to each other. Is, is that perhaps right?
1: I think that is. You can see clear parallels between the sort of the ancillary relief background to it and mediating of tolata claims between cohabitees, um, which wouldn't fall within the matrimonial causes act if they're not married, between commercial tolata situations, so property businesses, things like that, where you might have a set of issues going on, or the need for effectively a reckoning up in the parties' dealings, where some of it the parties will be able to sort out, but some of it, really, some guidance from the judge might help unlock the last sticking points. It, it will usually be dealt with as with, a, with an E&E, either by a master or district judge, who then won't take any further role in the conduct of the case if it fails to settle and goes past that point.
0: To conclude... I think that hopefully throughout this discussion on alternative dispute resolution, we have demonstrated that ADR is a far broader concept than just mediation. It has flexible mechanisms which might be suitable for all different types of disputes and thought has to be given to what particular form of ADR might be suitable in a particular case. And as we go forward in the post COVID world, with the courts under increasing stress and strain, it may be even more important to consider how parties might resolve their dispute, whether it be by way of arbitration that's much closer to a sort of court process or involving the courts by way of early neutral evaluation or perhaps an early neutral evaluation by a specialist. And things like that can make a real contribution to dispute resolution in general.
1: I think that's right. And I think, as you say, one of the lessons here is effectively horses for courses. There are many different types of ADR and finding one that the client understands and is comfortable with and that fits your situation is quite critical. And of course, bear in mind that some of these elements can be combined. You might find that an ENE resolves a large part of the dispute, but then, say, a mediation on quantum or potentially an expert determination on quantum or an arbitration on quantum to get you the rest of the way to settlement. But I think prior to COVID, most disputes were settled rather than going to trial. And with the ongoing judicial encouragement for the parties to look at ADR, this is a trend that's that's really only going to continue. But for now, I think it's time for us uh, both to say goodbye and thank you for listening.
0: Goodbye.